There is a darkness. Grasping in her hand a bouquet of flowers, she looks ahead to the other side of the river. A broken-hearted mother sits behind the body of her son as they journey back home to lay him to rest. War has robbed another young man of his life and a mother, her son. There is a darkness. Sitting before the rubble, she weeps. Frozen in time as all she has known has come crashing down. She sees stones and fragments of what was once her home. But she mourns not only the loss of her home, because beneath the rubble, some of her family remains. In a moment, she has lost everything. There is a darkness. What was once an entrance has become a memorial as the unimaginable has taken place. This stone gate has become a memorial decorated with flowers, bears, and balloons. Another school shooting. On her knees, she waters the ground with her tears, overwhelmed by agony. There is a darkness. We are surrounded by darkness, it feels. And collectively, we let out the groan, when will the darkness end? And it's into this cacophony of darkness, the message of Easter comes. Now, Easter means different things to different people. For some people here, Easter is all about getting the family together. It is about wearing pastel colors and watching the kids hunt Easter eggs and eating a super big lunch with hopefully a late afternoon nap. But it is all about bringing family together. For others, Easter is about tradition. This is just what you do on Easter. You come, you get dressed up, you sing some songs, and you listen to someone like me proclaim a message that you already know and agree with, and then you head on home. And maybe, for some of you, Easter is about obligation. Maybe to make mom or grandma or auntie or cousin or whoever happy you've showed up today. This is the day that you relinquish to say, fine, I will show up to church on Easter. And you've been drugged here, almost against your will. But there's one good sign is that they have decent coffee and donuts at the very least. <laughs> and so you've been drugged here and you might be thinking, here it is, another guy in a suit jacket telling me about some poor rabbi who was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago. And there's nothing I could say this morning that would break through your cynicism. I just want to say I'm so happy you're here. For a lot of people, if we're honest, Easter has lost its power, its transcendence, its potency. Easter is relegated to just yet another day. Soon and very soon, Monday will come and life will go on as usual. But Easter is anything but ordinary. We are gathered today because something happened. All around the world today, 
Millions of people are gathered to proclaim to their communities one unified message, and it is this, Christ has risen. Yes, and this good news changes everything. As a community, we have been in a series entitled Good News, and we are culminating this series today in our Easter gathering. You see, the message that we proclaim today has become known as the gospel, which in Greek is the word euangelion, meaning literally good news. However, this word is not Christian in nature. Its origins are actually deeply political. You see, this word was a word about kings and kingdoms. For example, in Jesus' day, the word euangelion was used to make an announcement about Rome taking over new land or conquering other kings, or it was uh, used to talk about a new Caesar being put in place of power. So heralds would come through all the major cities declaring, euangelion, we have good news, and they would give notice about what is happening in the kingdom. Follower of Jesus, followers of Jesus hijacked this word to say this is what the story of Jesus is all about. It is about a story of a new king bringing a new kingdom. In Mark's telling of the life of Jesus, he begins his biography like this. The beginning of the good news, the euangelion about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, there's so much Mark is saying here in this first sentence of his letter, but essentially he's telling us this, that his story begins with the good news, the euangelion about Jesus. In a few, few paragraphs from that line, Mark records some of Jesus' first words, and this is what Jesus says. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, which means to change your mind or direction and believe the good news. Jesus saw that his life was more than being a teacher, more than being a model of what a good person looks like in the world. His mission was actually something far more meaningful. Jesus saw his mission as coming to overthrow the reign of darkness. And for the people living when Jesus did, they thought he was talking about Rome, that oppressive government they found themselves under. And so when Jesus was killed, all of their hopes and dreams for freedom died with him. And so this morning, 2,000 years ago, begins actually with bad news. The one who promised to make all things right has been murdered. And that morning, two of Jesus' disciples are walking along on the road to Emmaus. It is there that Jesus comes up next to them and begins to walk with them. And as they are walking, they're sharing their disappointment about Jesus who had let them down. Now, Jesus has come up next to them, but the scripture tells us that they are not able to recognize him. He just seems to be like a nosy bystander eavesdropping on their conversation. And so they're sharing in their disappointment, and suddenly Jesus speaks up and he says, what are you talking about? Annoyed, one of them says, 
Have you been living under a rock? What do you think we're talking about? Jesus was just murdered. And begin to tell the story of who Jesus was. They say this. We are talking about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, and before God and before all people, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. They crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But we had hoped. For these two walking on the road to Emmaus, it seemed the darkness had won. You see, they had put all their chips into the reality that Jesus was going to overthrow the oppressive regime of darkness and establish his kingdom, and they would rule forever with him. But all of their dreams died with Jesus. And so they are disappointed, walking away from him. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you feel disappointed with Jesus let down, discouraged, or even find yourself in despair. And if you're honest, you know the darkness, and it feels like it's winning. And maybe this darkness has caused you to walk away from Jesus. Here is much, what you must know. Notice this. Jesus walks next to those who are walking away from him. Jesus is not afraid or shy about your doubt. He walks with you in it, and he invites you into the greater story at play. He meets you on the road of your disappointment. And maybe now you came reluctantly, or you came really expecting nothing to impress you, but you leave with this. Even in your doubt and your disappointment and your despair, Jesus is calling out to you. But then something happens next. Jesus reminds them of what the scriptures say about himself. He goes through the Old Testament and begins to explain that his kingdom would not come through military power or political power, but that his kingdom would overthrow the power of darkness through self-giving love. You see, Jesus not only meets us in our disappointment, but he bears the weight of darkness itself. You see, what looked like a defeat to everybody else was actually a victory. The reign of darkness has been vandalizing God's good world since the beginning, since the rebellion in the garden. And when Jesus arrived on the scene, this darkness did everything it could to destroy him. It consumed both political and religious leaders to relentlessly pursue his death. It caused the very people he came to save to mock and ridicule and reject him. It caused his closest friend to betray him and the others to scatter in fear. It compelled the very same people who on the Sunday before were proclaiming, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David, one, uh, a few days, less than a week from that moment, to cry out, crucify him. And when the darkness had sunk its teeth into Jesus and Jesus breathed out his last breath, the darkness thought it had won. There is a darkness, but a light has dawned. Because the grave couldn't hold Jesus in the ground. And the king has defeated the darkness with his love. 
And when the gospel authors tell the story of the crucifixion, they tell it as a story of enthronement. Jesus wears a crown and a robe and is lifted onto a throne, but his crown is that of suffering. His robe is that of shame, and his throne is a cross. And Jesus lays down his life so that all the darkness could pour itself into him, only to be overthrown. And on this Sunday, we call Easter, the king overcame darkness, and a new creation has begun, because he is risen. But this begs the question, what does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus is alive? And here in our teaching text, Paul is writing to an early church community in Corinth, as they are trying to navigate and figure out what the resurrection means. And in their community, there have, there have grown some who began to doubt the power of the resurrection and what exactly it means for this community. And so Paul enters into this conversation by saying this in verse 20. But Christ has indeed been risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through, also through a man. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. For us to properly understand the resurrection of Jesus, we must define what resurrection is. Paul puts it most clearly in saying this, Christ has been raised from the dead. Here's what's important to know. Resurrection is not rejuvenation. It's not that Jesus was almost dead, but they brought him to full health. Jesus was fully dead. Resurrection is simply not an awakening. Jesus didn't fake his death and was asleep, and then someone shook him, and he woke up three days later. It is not an awakening. Resurrection is the reversal of death into new life. Resurrection is death in reverse. This new life, however, is not the same as it once was. In Jesus' resurrected body, he is fully human, but a new kind of human. The kind of human that is free from the power of darkness and can live in both God's space and our space. Now, to be very clear, Jesus was not floating around as a ghost or a spirit. He walked around in a body, but it was a new kind of body. We get a glimpse into how his body works in the stories after Jesus' resurrection in that he just appears places and then disappears places, which is super cool, and I can't wait to understand more about what that looks like. But he is fully human in that the thing that he continually does with his disciples is eat with them so that they know he is human. And also in his body, he bears the scars of his crucifixion, which he invites Thomas to touch. Jesus was not um, more than human. He was human made new in um, the resurrection. And so uh, Nancy, Nancy Piercy says this. Jesus' resurrection is an eloquent affirmation of creation. It implies that this broken world will be fixed in the end. God's creation will be rested and you and I will live in a renewed creation in renewed bodies. At the end of the great drama, we will not be floating around in heaven as wispy, filmy, gossamer spirits. We will have physical feet firmly planted on a renewed earth. And so if your vision of heaven is this, 
you get plucked into this eternal worship service as a ghost or a spirit that's not at all the vision of the kingdom. You will have a resurrected body. Now, of this, Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits. Now, we don't live in a predominantly agricultural society. I know I have a few gardeners in here. Um, my wife and I are taking a stab at it, not promising it's going to go well, but we're going to take a stab at it. But first fruits is this idea of the very first fruit of a harvest. So if you are planting an apple tree, it is the first apple that comes off of the tree. And all of this waiting and working and cultivating and nurturing finds its culmination when the fruit emerges. And so you can imagine that as the farmer picks the apple and takes a bite, it is the best tasting apple he ever had, even if he was premature and plicked it too fast, you know, because it is a symbol of all of his hard work. Now, the farmer didn't labor and toil and sweat and bleed for one apple. He bled for the orchard that's coming, the abundance of fruit that's there. Jesus, his resurrection, is the taste of eternity that's on the way. It is the first bite into the resurrected life that we are awaiting for. The first fruit is a sign, a promise. More fruit is on the way. And this is what Paul uses to talk about Jesus' resurrection. Simply put, it's this. Jesus' resurrection is a promise that our resurrection is coming to. Because he lives, we too will live. Now, the hope, that we, the hope that we have is that our bodies will too be resurrected. In the end, we are not disembodied spirits that get plugged into that perpetual worship service, but rather our bodies are resurrected and we delight in the joy and wonder of the new creation. Life with God will look embodied. We will not be, you know, that's, that's more of like Dante's Inferno and different perceptions of heaven, Greek perceptions of heaven. It's not a biblical one. We will have physical bodies. And Jesus promises that the resurrection is coming for those who believe. This is why the biblical authors use the metaphor of sleep for those who have died, because they will, too, awaken again. And all of this looks forward when those who have fallen asleep will in Christ rise again. In Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he says this, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you, not, you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so, that we, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. The resurrection means that we have hope. We suffer loss, we face the darkness, we grieve, but we always have hope. When Jesus returns, he will raise those who have died in him into resurrected life with him. And the resurrection also means that Christ has overcome his enemies. Verse 24, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that he does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. Then the end will come. 
This is not the apocalyptic end of the world. What the biblical author is talking about here in Paul is that the end of the story culminating in Jesus will finally arrive. All, all of the eschatological hope will be waiting for that moment to be revealed when Jesus hands the kingdom of God to the Father. Now, it says this line that Jesus will make his enemies his footstool, which if you're a Bible scholar, you know uh, Paul is quoting for both Psalm 8 and Psalm 110. Now, I never realized how kind of gangster of a line this is, but it's pretty gangster. Let me explain it here. What does it mean to make your enemies your footstool? When I thought about this phrase, I thought about like someone kicking their feet on an ottoman, which is kind of like a diss, you know, like got you, but it's way more intense than that. To make an enemy a footstool literally means to place your foot on your enemy's neck. That's what it says that Jesus has done to the powers. He has placed his foot on their neck. And it makes me think of the promise in the garden where, where, where the Lord is looking forward to the Messiah that will come, that is Jesus. And he says of him that the serpent would strike his heel, but he would crush his head. His enemies had become his footstool. And so in this series that we have been in, we've been talking about what exactly we have been freed from. Who are the enemies that Jesus is destroying? And so we've talked about sin in the flesh, the Satan and lies, and it culminates in today talking about death. Now, I want to quickly recap where we've been so far in the series. When the biblical authors talk about Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, it is talked about in the language of victory. The, one of the phrases given to this in theological terms is Christus victor, Christ is victorious over his enemies. Paul in his letter to the Colossians describes it this way, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He has forgiven us our sins and canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, and he has taken away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. First, sin and the flesh. The first enemy that is defeated is sin and the flesh. Sin is described in three ways by the biblical authors. Missing the mark, a bend or crooked path, and a fracturing of relationships. What is missing the mark? Like, what is the mark we're supposed to hit? What is the path that's not supposed to bend? And what are the relationships we are not to fracture? To put it simply, the mark, the path, and the relationship are all about love. Sin is the vandalism of love. And sin has vandalized us as well, corrupting us and giving birth to a part of ourselves called the flesh. And the flesh is our disordered loves and desires marred from what we were as the image of God. Jesus has defeated sin by nailing it to the cross. Now, the Satan and lies. The Satan is a title given to the enemy who seeks to destroy all of God's good world and usher in the darkness. For those of you who are new, you might be wondering why I keep saying the before Satan. Because it's not a name, it's a title. In Hebrew, it's Hasatan, which means the Satan, which is literally translated the adversary, the enemy. In all of the scriptures, this enemy is never given a name. He's only given titles, the serpent, the Satan, the, the, the adversary, the evil one, all of these different titles because the biblical authors don't think he even deserves a name. It is a subtle dig at him. The cross and the resurrection is Jesus overcoming the, the Satan, the Hasatan. 
Now, what's important for you to understand is that Satan and God are not equal powers fighting against one another. It is not good and evil wrestling over things. Good easily triumphs over evil. Light always conquers darkness. Love always defeats death. And in the end, God will make quick work of his enemies. The Satan was a created being who chose to rebel and drag others into his rebellion with him. And the way that he does that, brothers and sisters, is through lies. If Satan cannot compel you to do anything, but he can influence you to believe lies and live a bent and broken life out of it. And Jesus has come, in his words, as the truth to set us free. Now, Jesus overcomes those powers. And lastly, Jesus overcomes death, which brings us to today. The last enemy for Jesus to destroy is that of death. In all of the photos that I showed you, there was a common thread. The thread was death. It seems that we see darkness most clearly when we encounter death. Despite the cliche sayings and sweet platitudes, something in the core of our being always cries out when we are confronted with death. It is almost as if Something in us aches that it is not supposed to be this way. Because it's not. We were made for life with God, not for death. We see this most clearly in the scene of the life of Jesus. Jesus' friend Lazarus dies. And as Jesus shows up to the place they have him laid, it says that Jesus uh, was, was, was deeply moved not a good translation, to be super honest with you. But the literal translation sounds kind of funny. It says that Jesus snorts with rage, right? Which just doesn't fit as nicely in there. But that's the literal translation. When Jesus shows up at the grave, he's not just like, oh, bummer. He is so angry, he is trying to calm himself by deep breaths through the nose. <sighs> he's that angry when he sees the grave. And a few verses later, it says that Jesus begins to weep. Now, if you know the story, this seems kind of confusing because what is Jesus about to do? Raise his friend from the dead. It is when Jesus looks death straight in the face, he is filled with rage and sadness because this is not the way it was supposed to be. Death is Jesus' enemy, and it has taken his friend. And he is angry. And upset about it. Now, death is not our destiny. Life with him was. John Mark McMillan, in a song called Death at His Grave, says it this way. On Friday, a thief. On Sunday, a king. Laid down in grief, but awoke with the keys. To hell on that day the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid death in his grave. Jesus laid death in his grave and extends his resurrected life to us. Death could not hold him. Resurrection life bursted forth, which culminates in Paul saying this, when he has done this, then the Son of Man will be subject to him who put all things under him, so that God may be all in all. The end of all of this is for God to be all in all. 
the culmination of all of human history is that God and humanity are reunited and there are no more enemies who stand between us. St. Augustine says this, God will be the consummation of all of our desiring, the object of our unending vision, of our unlessening love, of our unwearying praise, and in this gift of vision, the, rep- the response of love, this pain of praise, all alike will share, and all will share in everlasting life. The end goal of all of this is that nothing would stand between us and God anymore. Jesus has defeated death. Now, it's the biblical author's understanding and our experience that we too will one day die. But later in Paul's letter here, he says, death has lost its sting, its power. Why? Because death will not continue to hold us. Jesus will raise us again. And how do you know this? Jesus is the taste of the resurrection coming. Because he lives, you too will live. So you have hope. You don't grieve like those who do not have hope. That when you die, that's the, that's the end. It is just the beginning of a new life with God. There are two guys sitting outside of a hospital. One of them deeply wounded and discouraged. And they're talking. And the one in the wheelchair hurting looks up at the night sky. And he says, there's just one story. The oldest. His friend who is with him says, and what's that? He says, light versus dark. His friend joins him and looking up at the night sky. And he says, it appears to me that the dark has a lot more territory. His friend says, you're right about that. But you're looking at it all wrong, you see. Once there was only dark. But if you ask me, the light is winning. There is a darkness, but Sunday's coming. There is a darkness, but resurrection is here and on the way. There is a darkness, but it's been emptied of its power. There is a darkness, but the light is winning.